Uh, returning to a place uh, or to people that you haven't seen uh, for some time can be an occasion of great joy or it can be an occasion of great anxiety uh, depending on the reasons of your initial departure. Uh, whenever I go back uh, to where my family lives, that's an occasion of great joy for me. And yet there are other situations where returning and being reunited would not provoke positive emotions. Have you ever had to return somewhere for the first time after departing in perhaps not the greatest circumstances? Okay, you left on bad terms. And in order to return, it required much uh, humility. And you're quite anxious about it because you weren't sure how things were going to play out. Or perhaps there was a family fight and horrible things were said. And now you have to face each other again. Or you have some horrible memories in a particular location and you've tried your hardest to avoid that location, but now it's unavoidable. Or perhaps you left a workplace in not the greatest circumstances, and now you're forced to return. You know, I'm sure we've all had such situations where returning was not easy, and many different scenarios were playing out in our minds. Okay, we weren't sure how it was going to unfold. And this is what it must have been like for Ruth and Naomi to return to Bethlehem, okay, especially for Naomi. Okay, she had not been back for over 10 years. Uh, her time away had certainly not gone to plan. Uh, what would people think? How would they respond when they saw her? Would she be received back? And th- th- there must have been much running through her minds, through her mind, uh, singular. And, you know, th- there must have been many memories that would trigger varying emotional responses as they made the journey back to Bethlehem. Remember, this is where she was married. This is where her children were born, and yet now she had no husband and no children. And no doubt she replayed the last 10 years of her life over in her mind, and feelings of guilt and remorse would have plagued her. And perhaps at times she thought, hey, maybe I shouldn't go back to Bethlehem. There must have been a great variety of emotions surging through her inner being. And her anxieties must have increased and her heart must have been beating faster the closer they got to Bethlehem. And no doubt many different scenarios would have been running through her mind. Um, I'm not sure if you're an overthinker, but sometimes when we can think about how's this going to play out, is is this going to happen, is this going to happen, is this going to happen, or is this going to happen? And Naomi is flesh and blood like you and I, so I'm sure... That was happening in her mind. What's interesting is that the text actually tells us nothing about the journey from Bethlehem to Moab. All we're told in verse 19 is, so they went until they came to Bethlehem. So what this tells us is that they continued until the trip was complete. Okay, was this a trip in silence? Uh, Was this a trip where Ruth asked lots of questions? Uh, That seems likely. Was Naomi in the mood to talk? Perhaps not. But they did complete the return, okay, that the prodigal came home. And it's this that forms the big idea of this closing section. It's all about the return to Bethlehem. And I'd like to draw out four lessons from this return. And I'd like to use these lessons to both exegete and apply the text. So four lessons from this return. And the first lesson is this God's goodness and grace in the return okay God's goodness and grace in the return 
Okay, as I've just said, this text is all about the return to Bethlehem. And uh, this is obvious in verse 19. We're told that they went until they came to Bethlehem. Okay, the idea being they left Moab with the intention of going to Bethlehem. Okay, the, the location in the GPS was set and they continued until they arrived. And we're also told in verse 19 when they were come to Bethlehem. So in other words, they arrived. And in verse 22, which functions as both a summary and a transition, confirms this as the big idea of the text. Verse 22 begins, so Naomi returned, and halfway through the verse we're told, which returned out of the country of Moab. So they had their exodus from Moab, and they returned to Bethlehem. Okay, so this text is all about returning. Not Naomi had left, but now she had come back. Going away, coming back. This is actually a theme in many stories in the Bible. Okay, Abraham goes to Egypt, but he returns. Jacob flees to Syria, but he returns. The people of Judah go into captivity in Babylon, and they return. The prodigal son goes away, but he returns. And in fact, this is really the story of all mankind. Okay, all mankind go away from God. And the Lord, in his astonishing grace, has provided a way for us to return to him, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the Bible is really a story about God providing a way for mankind okay, who has gone away from him, but God has provided a way for man to be brought back. And Naomi illustrates this point. Okay, ten years previously with her family, they had gone away from the promised land. They had departed from the Lord. Okay, they'd gone away from the covenant. But now she's returning to the land, returning to the covenant community, returning to the Lord. Okay, and I don't want us to miss the obvious point here that this is all of grace. The Lord could have very easily left Naomi in Moab, left her bitter and broken, left her to wallow in her sin and shame, left her empty and destitute. He could have left her there to experience more pain and heartache for her to enjoy yet more consequences for her sin. And yet in his grace and in his kindness, the Lord brought Naomi home, back to Bethlehem, back to the place of blessing. He gave her another chance. He restored the wanderer and brought her back to himself. And hence, this return to Bethlehem illustrates the grace of God. And this plays out in our lives in many different ways. And here's two main ways that the grace of God plays out in our lives in a similar way. Number one, in conversion. For the Christian, we were dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1. We're born in sin. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. And we had God's holy wrath hanging over our heads because we'd rebelled against the Lord. We we were fully entrenched in Moab, if you like, on our way to hell and with no way to deal with our sin. That's the predicament we're in as natural man. But God, in his astonishing grace, has provided a way for us to be saved, a way for you and I to be made right with God, a way for sin to be dealt with. And understand that there's nothing at all in us that merits or deserves that. It's all of grace. That that's God's gift to us. Okay, God has made it possible for us to return 
to him. And my friend, don't lose sight of the glorious grace of God in saving us. Okay, without his grace, we would be damned to eternity in hell. And then the second way that this grace plays out in our lives is the wandering believer. You know, some believers drift from the Lord, okay, that they wander back into worldliness and wickedness. And the Lord is so gracious when he pursues the wandering saint. Again, like the father of the prodigal son, he waits for the returning one. He will accept them. He will embrace them. And this, again, is staggering grace that the Lord would accept this one back. You know, I know in my life, there's a period of three or four years when I wandered away from the Lord. Okay, when I pursued the things of this world. And the Lord in his amazing grace pursued me. He had to allow things to spin out of control and get into a really big mess. But he didn't leave me on the scrap heap. And he would have been justified to leave me on the scrap heap, allow me to ruin my life completely. But in his grace, he didn't. And because of his grace, because of his work, I returned to him. And perhaps you too can resonate with that. Okay, and we learn that our God is gracious. Okay, he, he extends astonishing kindness to us, and it's completely undeserved. Okay, don't miss the grace of God in display in all of its spectacular glory in Ruth and Naomi's return to Bethlehem. Okay, that's lesson one. Lesson number two, sin never ends well. Okay, sin never ends well. Okay, if we could always see how sin was going to end in our lives, that would help us stay away from it. If we knew that this will happen if I do that, that's a pretty powerful deterrence. Okay, you know, if you do this, you're going to lose your marriage and lose your children. Okay, that's, that's a pretty strong deterrent to avoid that sin. Okay, and Satan is very aware of that fact. And hence, right from the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, right up until this very moment, he ensures that sin looks appealing, but the consequences remain hidden. It's a bit like fishing. If you use bait, the bait hides the hook. And the bait looks appealing to the fish. Little do they realize there's a hook buried in the appealing bait. And that's how sin works. Usually sin looks very attractive. Okay, it's alluring. It promises us fun, satisfaction, fulfillment, or something else that we're craving. But we need to remember, and we need to remind ourselves constantly that sin never ends well. Okay, and this is a lesson that Naomi learned the hard way. Okay, she returned to Bethlehem, but she was battered and bruised. Sin had beaten her up. It had knocked her down, broke her bones, left her a bleeding mess. And this is what sin always does. Okay? Sin never ends well. Okay, notice Naomi's return in verse 19. It says, And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? Now, I wonder what was going through Naomi's mind as she saw Bethlehem in the distance. Okay, they'd made this long journey, and now she can see it. What was running through her mind? Okay, surely there must have been some tears. Memories would have flooded 
her mines, perhaps Elimelech, Marlon, and, and Chilion, must have entered her thinking. Perhaps feelings of regret and remorse swept through her. Maybe there was positive feelings, but I think the mood of the text says that's unlikely. Okay, your bitterness and brokenness is certainly the tone of the text. But it's interesting that as they make their way into Bethlehem, there's quite the commotion. And I don't think Ruth and Naomi would have expected this. Okay, people coming in and out of the city gates, that was not unusual. But notice the language here. It says, all the city. Okay, all the city. So, so word had obviously spread and a crowd had gathered and were told that the city was moved about them. Okay, so in other words, there was a real commotion. Okay, and the, the Hebrew phraseology employed here is actually used elsewhere of Solomon's coronation. Okay, 1 Kings 1.45, and there we read, and, there, sorry, and they are come up from thence rejoicing so that the city rang again. And then the same phraseology is used in 1 Samuel 4, 5. And there the earth rang with the people's joyous shouts at the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the idea here is that the whole town was buzzing with excitement over their arrival. Okay, that there's quite the commotion. Okay, that they're happy, they're excited. And I'm not sure Naomi expected such a welcome. But notice the response of the women in the final phrase of verse 19. It says, and they said, is this Naomi? Okay, they said is in the feminine in Hebrew. So this is the women of the city talking. And they asked the question amongst themselves, is this Naomi? Is this really her? And the sense seems to be, okay, is this really her after such a long period of time? It's been years is she finally back? And whoa, she, she looks different. Okay, it seems likely that previously she, she was affluent and well-known. Okay, that's why she's remembered 10 years on. But now that the appearance of poverty and stress, would, sorry, distress, was very evident. Okay, that there's been this drastic change. Okay, she had left to avoid famine, but she had returned looking like she was in famine. Okay, she looked worse for wear. And no doubt people ask, you know, well, where, where's her husband? Where's Elimelech? Where, where, where's her sons? Where's Marlon and Chilion? And who's this lady with her? She's not one of us. Why did she bring a Moabite back with her? Okay, the people were in shock that Naomi, much like the prodigal son, had left in riches but returned in rags. She had lost everything. Okay, and this becomes very apparent in Naomi's reaction in verse 20. Okay, notice that she asked the people to no longer call her Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or delightful, but rather call her Mara. And Mara means bitter. Now, we need to remember that in the Bible times, names were, were more than just something to distinguish you from the person next to you. Okay, my name, Brendan, I don't even know what it means. Okay, it's just my name to distinguish me from the person next to me. But in the Bible times, it usually said something about your character or something about what was going to happen in your life or what had happened in your life. So this name change graphically illustrates her situation. She had previously been pleasant and delightful, but now she was bitter. 
And this name Mara is the same Hebrew word used to describe the bitter waters that the Israelites came across after they left Egypt. Okay, bitter water that couldn't be consumed. This is how Naomi regarded her life. And this illustrates quite graphically that the cost of sin. Okay, it never ends well. And it had left Naomi bitter, battered, and broken. Okay, she'd strayed from God. She'd left the covenant community. And she found bitterness as a result. You know, one commentator put it like this. He said, after three graves in Moab, Naomi had learned this invariable rule of biblical ethics, that the further you stray from God, the nearer to death you come. She has discovered that the wages of sin can only be death, and the gift of God that the people were enjoying in Bethlehem was life. And you and I would do well to learn from Naomi. Okay, it's a simple lesson, but it's one we need to forever keep at the front of our minds. Sin never ends well. Okay, it promises much, but it gives us nothing and it takes everything. Okay, the consequences of sin are always dire. Sure, it looks very appealing at the start, but that soon fades. Okay, for, for Naomi and for her family, Moab, okay, initially, it looked very appealing. In fact, it looked better than God's way. Okay, look look at Bethlehem. We're in famine. Okay, it looked hopeless. Let's go to Moab. But the joy of Moab was was short-lived. And that's always the case with sin. Okay, and whatever temptation that you're faced with, and it will vary from person to person. Some people it will be in proper relationships. Others it will be anger, gossip, lust, materialism. We're all tempted in different ways. But we need to remember this point, sin is never worth it. Okay? It's a cheap imitation. It doesn't end well and will always cost us dearly. So don't go down the path. Because remember, you can choose your sin, but you can never choose your consequences. Okay? It's your choice whether you sin or not, but you don't get to choose the consequences. Okay, Naomi and her family chose Moab. But I think they would have chose very differently if they were aware of the consequences. Okay, so keep this in mind when you face the temptation to sin. It never ends well. That's the second lesson. The third lesson is this. Sometimes God needs to bring us low to help us grow. Sometimes God needs to bring us low in order to help us grow. You know, in her outburst demanding that her name be changed, uh, Naomi makes it clear that the Lord was responsible for her circumstances. And she uses here what's called an ABBA pattern. And what I mean by that is God's name is mentioned four times in verses 20 and 21. So we see the Almighty, the Lord, the Lord, the Almighty. So ABBA. And there are a couple of legitimate ways to understand this lament. And here we need to be aware of our own tendencies when it comes to Bible characters. Okay, when we read through the Bible, particularly narrative portions of Scripture, we can be guilty of viewing everything positively or everything negatively. Okay, we, we can idolize biblical characters or we can villainize biblical characters. And we need to be aware of this, especially with biblical narrative when it's not clear. 
Okay, sometimes it's not clear, so, so we need to be careful and be aware of our own bent. In this particular situation, this outburst could be understood as Naomi pointing her finger at God. Okay, she, she's blaming him for everything that's unfolded, and this could reveal deep-seated anger and bitterness towards the Lord. Okay, that, that's a common response of mankind when things fall apart. Okay, we refuse to take any blame ourselves, we put it all on God, and there's a refusal to think that we have contributed to this in any way. Okay, that's a plausible way to understand this text, and I'm not opposed to that understanding. But if this is the case, it's important to understand that it is not God who had dealt bitterly with her, but rather she was reaping the fruit of her sin. Okay, she had sown the seed and now she's reaping the crop. But I slightly favor the view that what Naomi is doing here is acknowledging the hand of God. So she is conceding that the disciplining hand of the Lord is upon her life. So she does not believe that, that everything that has unfolded so far, okay, that this is not just bad luck. Okay, her life has not fallen to pieces by chance, but rather the Lord had allowed this to happen. And this is very clear in verse 21. She says, I went out full, but the Lord hath brought me back empty. Okay, so she was full. Her life lacked nothing. I think that's primarily speaking about her family. So she left with a husband and with children, but had returned with nothing. Probably also includes material prosperity. So she left with money, but she has returned destitute. But as an aside, I do think that this declaration that, hey, I've returned with nothing, it's actually a little bit harsh. Because remember, who's with her? Okay, she, she's brought Ruth back. So she wasn't completely empty. And if I was Ruth, I'd be a little bit stung by that comment. It's like, hey, I've returned empty. It's like, hey, what, what, what about me? And I think this reveals that Naomi is, is hurting a lot. And often in such situations, we don't see the blessings. But despite this, I do think the fact that she actually returned, okay, she went back to Bethlehem, this is evidence that she has not completely given up on the Lord. Okay, so she's not so angry and, and so bitter that she wants nothing to do with the Lord. Okay, if that was her mentality, she wouldn't go back to Bethlehem. But, but rather, what she is doing here, she's acknowledging that this is of the Lord. Okay, it was the Lord that allowed these bitter circumstances to be unleashed in her life. He, he oversaw it. Okay, she's acknowledging the Lord's involvement. His providential hand is on the circumstances. I think, I think this is what she's saying more than, okay, I, I've done nothing wrong and God is just this unfair bully who is tormenting me for no reason. Okay, I think this is more that Naomi is attributing nothing to chance, but everything to the Lord. Okay, she, she's identifying here that she has come under divine discipline. Okay, I don't think she's attributing moral evil to the Lord, but the disastrous, grievous misfortune that she has experienced, she's identifying that as the Lord's disciplining hand. Okay, and what this teaches us is that there are times in our lives too when God needs to bring us low. When he needs to break and shatter us in order to bring about growth in our lives. Okay, because here's the thing. 
If Moab remained pleasant, they probably would have never returned. And then they would never have experienced the immense blessings that the Lord had in store for them in Bethlehem. Okay, sometimes God needs to take some things away. Sometimes he needs to empty us. Sometimes we need to be brought low. You know, as one author put it, God sometimes takes away the things that have become precious to us because they are supporting us in our life of sin and hardness of heart toward him. Alternatively, he sometimes takes away things that were good in themselves because he wants to use our lives as a powerful testimony of the sufficiency of his relentless grace in the midst of our weakness and loss. Invariably, though he has not brought these trials and losses into our lives because he hates us and he's seeking to afflict us or to get even with us for our sin. On the contrary, if we are his children, he loves us. And through this loss, wants us to receive something far more precious than all the trinkets to which we become so desperately attached. He wants to give us more of himself. And this is an important lesson for us to learn. Okay, we need to avoid the temptation of blaming God and getting bitter and angry at him and understand that he has a plan and purpose behind everything, even if we don't know it, even if we don't see it. And sometimes he needs to bring us low. Sometimes he needs to empty us. Sometimes the Lord needs to shatter our heart in order to capture our hearts. Sometimes we need to be brought low in order to grow. And sometimes there are things that need to be taken from us. Sometimes there are lessons that we need to learn and we will only learn them in hard times. They cannot be learned any other way. And sometimes we need to be emptied before we return to the Lord or before we will fully submit to him. You know, Naomi needed to be emptied before she would return home and end up being blessed immensely, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book. And this is often how God works. And understand that if you wander away from the Lord like Naomi, the Lord will afflict you. That's a sign that you are his child. But he does this out of grace. Why? Because he wants you to come back to himself. That's the motive. And often the Lord needs to bring us low in order to help us to grow. That is the third lesson. And the fourth and final lesson is God's good and gracious providence. As I mentioned at the beginning, verse 22 acts as a summary and also a transition. Okay, the first half of the verse is a summary. It says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. So that summarized what's just happened. And then the second half is a transition. It says, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Now, what we need to understand is that this transition, it's not merely supplying historical information, okay? although it does that. It identifies a date for us. They arrived at the beginning of barley harvest, okay? March, April sort of time. But what it does, this declaration, is it actually sets us up for the remainder of the story. And this phrase is actually a glorious act of providence, The Lord got them at Bethlehem at this time. 
Okay, this was not an accident. This was not by chance. It's not just, well, hey, look, we arrived and it's harvest. But rather the hand of the Lord ensured that they were here at this very moment. Okay, what, what's the significance? What's the importance of harvest time? And how does this illustrate the good and gl- glorious providence of God? Okay, well, harvest time was traditionally a time of great joy. Okay, that's the first thing. In fact, the Bible actually uses harvest time as an illustration of joy. Isaiah 9.3 is one such example. It says they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. Okay? So, so this is a real change for Naomi and Ruth. Moab, it had been full of sorrow. Okay? But now they had returned to Bethlehem and here joy would be found. Okay? But much more than this, since it was harvest time food would be abounding okay it would be everywhere the house of bread would be full with bread again yeah and this is very important because ruth and naomi are widows they've got nothing and hence we can see god's providential wisdom in returning them at a time when food was in abundance but even more significantly This detail would prove to be crucial because due to the harvest, Ruth would be able to find some work. Guess where she found some work? It was in the fields of a man named Boaz. And this contact occurred because of the harvest. And this is the key to the rest of this narrative. Okay, the fact that Ruth and Boaz met during harvest. And this is a very important detail for the rest of the Bible, because guess what? Ruth ends up in the most important genealogy in history. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 1. And this is another illustration of the good and gracious providence of God. As one writer described it, this is the rainbow of God's sovereign purpose shining in the blackness of Naomi's sky. And it reminds us that... Without God, things don't happen by mistake or chance. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't just good timing that they arrived back at Bethlehem at this time. Understand, this was all part of God's plan. And this is how God works in our lives. Understand that God's hand is upon the circumstances and situations in our life. Even the bad things that happen are not outside of his control. The the evil things, they're not ordained by God. The evil things that unfold are a part of living in a sinful world with sinful beings who have a free will. but, But our God is so great that even the evil things that unfold, he uses them to accomplish his plans and purposes. And it's amazing to ponder. And I want you to think about this, that the God of the universe, okay, that the one who created everything, the supreme being, his hand is upon your life and his hands upon my life. Our God is actively involved in the day to day moments. Okay, get that. Our God is not just some distant deity sitting in the grandstand watching on, but rather he providentially oversees everything. 
He works in and through all things in our lives. That's amazing. Okay, God's hand is on our lives. Now, sometimes the providence isn't always a positive thing in our perspective. Sometimes the providence may be a hindrance. Sometimes we may not like it. Other times it will simply blow our minds. Have you ever experienced that? You think, how in the world did God do that? That's amazing. But it's very important for us to identify the hand of God at work in our lives. Okay, don't miss it. Okay, there are countless providences throughout every single day. We need to be deliberate in identifying it. And thank the Lord for it. Praise Him for it. Sure, we may not always understand it. Sometimes we may even disagree. We think, Lord, I don't think this is good. Sometimes it may take years for us to see the wisdom of it. Have you ever experienced that? At the time you think, man, this does not make any sense. And then years later you think, hey, I see what the Lord did back there. It's pretty cool when we see that. Sometimes we may never get that. We we may never understand until eternity. And that's okay. Because God is God and we are not. But you know, it's astonishing to ponder that God is at work in your life. God's at work in my life. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares for us. And may his providence that's at work in our lives, in the day-to-day moments, may that be a deep source of praise and adoration for our great gods. God's hand is upon our lives. That's our God. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for who you are. You're a great God. And uh, we we do thank you that uh, you are a sovereign God. You're ruling and reigning. Uh, You're in control. And uh, we do thank you for uh, your providence uh, that is at work uh, in this world and that is at work uh, in our lives. Uh, We do thank you so much for that. And I do pray that this would stoke um, our awe uh, and wonder of who you are. Uh, Lord, as we go our separate ways, please help us uh, to to be living for you uh, throughout the rest of this week. Help us to shine the gospel light brightly and keep us safe until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.